One of my favorite authors of the 20th century was a guy named A.W. Tozer. I don't have any Tozer uh, fans in the house, but uh, A.W. a few Tozer fans, okay, awesome. Uh, feel like I'm with family a little bit. Uh, but Tozer said something that when I read this quote, I was around 20 years old, and it changed the shape of my faith. It changed the, the trajectory of my life when I read this quote. And it's true whether you're a Christian, whether you're not a Christian, uh, but Tozer said this many, many years ago, that the most important thing about a person is what you think about when you think about God. That the most important thing about your life today, the most important thing about my life today is whatever we think about when we think about God, because what we think about when we think about God ends up determining how we respond to God in our life. And uh, it's true for all 7 billion people on the planet today that everybody has, uh, what Tozer's getting at is that everybody has a perception, everybody has a, a picture, some kind of construct uh, of who God is, of, of what God is like. When I say God, for, for everybody, uh, something comes to mind. And whatever comes to mind for you, whatever that picture is, uh, ends up determining uh, the kind of life that you live. It ends up determining the, the direction of your life. It ends up determining how you respond to God. And if you're anything like me, oftentimes uh, we come to church and we end up trying to fix things about our life. I need to start this. I need to stop this. All things that are fine and good. Uh, but at the core of it, it's often, it's a picture problem, not a behavior problem. And it's why one of the most beautiful prayers we can pray in church, one of the most beautiful songs we can sing is, God, open the eyes of my heart. I wanna, I wanna see you. I, I wanna know you. That uh, beginning to say, God, I wanna see you accurately as you've described yourself in your word begins to change the, the way we live our lives. In, in the words of uh, Proverbs, this guy named Solomon who wrote this book uh, that we've been studying together, the book of Proverbs, that whether or not we take the path of the fool or whether or not we choose the path of the wise, really comes down to how we view God and what is our perception, what is our picture uh, of God because how we respond to God in our life ends up really boiling down to what is your picture, what is your perception of God. And uh, if you're anything like me, I've spent a lot of my adult life working out my picture of God and trying to say, God, I wanna see you as your word describes you uh, and, and cleaning off the mud or the dirt from the lens of the picture and, and really trying to have an accurate perception of who uh, God is, because I, I grew up thinking that God was just kind of this old guy uh, who sat in heaven and had a long white beard, and um, not that there's anything wrong with that, but he was just kind of like a, a grumpy Santa Claus. That was kind of my God. And I thought God's favorite word was no, because that was the, every question I asked in church, that was always the answer. Can I hang out with them? No. <laughs> uh, can I go there? No. Can I, you know, have any fun at all? No. Can I Run beside the pool with scissors. No, it was just, no, it was just, I thought that was kind of who God was, that he loved me, but he didn't really like me. Uh, uh, only because I'd prayed this prayer, he had to kind of have me sit at the banquet table. But other than that, uh, I was just kind of, kind of obnoxious to him. And uh, that was kind of my perception of God. And I would go to church and the pastor would read verses that would say things like, uh, if your right eyes ever calls you to sin, just pluck it out. And I would think, I'm not this committed, you know? Um, <laughs> I remember there was this guy at our church, he sat on the third row every week and he wore a patch. <laughs> I, I thought, wow, that's some dedication. I'm just, maybe a few more quiet times, I'll get there. But, 
and, and that was kind of my view of God, that he was repressive. He was trying to take things uh, from us, that he didn't want something for us. He wasn't trying to lead us into life. And, and that the Christian journey, the Christian experience, and I think this is true for many of us, uh, we view God as repressive, that, uh, that the Christian life is really about just kind of white-knuckling your way through it and really just you know, kind of grin and bear it and just kind of do it against the flow of your desire. And so I want to explore that together today. Uh, Does God work constantly against our desire? Is the Christian life just about uh, denying, denying, making sure that you're as miserable as possible, uh, that that's what God really wants? Uh, Or is he trying to open us up to desire bigger, better, more wonderful, beautiful uh, things in our life? And so it really boils down to how we think about God, what our perception uh, of God is. These are the things that I want Uh, to explore today. If you have a Bible, let's open it to Proverbs chapter four is where we are going to be. If you have a Bible, Proverbs chapter four. We're gonna start in verse 11, 11 together. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can follow along on the screens. It's always a good place uh, to track with where we are going. We've been in this series together for the last several weeks as a church, uh, exploring the words of King Solomon, uh, the ancient proverb writer, uh, and it's amazing how words that written 3,000 years ago ring so true uh, all these years later in terms of words, in terms of friendships, in all these different areas of life. Uh, he's inviting us into what he calls uh, the life of wisdom or the path of wisdom, uh, that, it, that it's skill in the art of living when we begin to choose the way that he invites us to live. Proverbs chapter four, verse 11. He says, I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. Again and again in the book of Proverbs is this idea that you have two paths that you can go down. There's the path of the wise, that uh, you can become skilled in the art of living, and you can become uh, prudent, you can become wise if you begin to choose this way of life, that you see what God wants you to do, and you decide to submit and surrender to it. And there's another path that he talks about over and over again, uh, the path of the fool. That if you see what's wise or right and you decide not to do it, that it doesn't place you on morally neutral territory. It automatically places you on what Solomon calls the path of the fool. Uh, And what he's essentially inviting us to see over and over again is that uh, 70 times in the book of Proverbs, there's this option, two roads diverged in the yellow woods. Uh, Which way are you going to go? The way of the wise or the way of the fool. And the way of the wise and the way of the fool, he's inviting us to see that every action we do, every decision, every behavior, it essentially is putting us on one path or the other. That nothing happens in isolation. We are always on a path. Our life is moving in a direction. So he's inviting us in Proverbs 4.11 to choose the path of the wise. He says, when you walk, verse 12, your steps on the path of the wise, they will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble, that there's some kind of uh, incredible freedom that comes. When we begin to choose the path of the wise, that we'll run with freedom, this, uh, this reckless abandon, this beautiful kind of life. In Psalms, David, uh, Solomon's dad actually, says it this way in Psalm 119, verse 32, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. I've always loved that verse. It's such a strange uh, concept. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my my heart free. We don't generally think of the word command and the word free in the same sentence, do we? And what he's suggesting here, what David's suggesting, same thing Solomon's suggesting, that freedom is not found away from God, it's found with God. 
that life's not found in ignoring the rules or the, or the limitations that scripture would place on us, that God has not come. Uh, and our picture of God wouldn't be that God's some old guy just saying no to things, to deny us of things, but he gives us rules for our benefit, that he's not taking something away. He's trying to give something to us. And that freedom in life is found in surrendering to the way of God. Freedom's found with God. Uh, it's not found away from God. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Solomon, David's son, says when you walk or run down this path, you will not be hampered. Verse 13, hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. Uh, David and Solomon uh, in Psalms and Proverbs talk about this idea that the words of God are like honey uh, to the mouth, to the tongue, that they're so precious, they're so sweet that when you taste it, uh, it, it's like a brand new world opens up. Uh, because you should crave this kind of life, the life of wisdom. Verse 14, do not set foot on the path of the wicked. In other words, we have options. We can always go the way of the fool. We can reject wisdom or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. For they cannot rest until they do evil. They are robbed of sleep. And in my Bible, I circled the phrase robbed of sleep. Till they make someone stumble. Uh, you will notice in life, and many of us, like myself, you've noticed in life, when you have chosen the path of the fool, when your life's gone in that direction, when you've rejected wisdom, uh, it, it's a restless life. It, it will keep you up at night. I've noticed in times in my life where I have bent towards concealment, hiding things, wearing masks, and away from confession, a free life where I'm open, honest with people uh, that love me and care about me. When I have bent towards concealment instead of confession, uh, it, 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 I, I lose sleep. There's this restlessness that comes with hiding and trying to make sure, well, these, these people uh, don't know this and I need to make sure that I'm, I'm wearing a mask all the time. And am I gonna be found out? This kind of life, uh, it, it's, it's a life where you get robbed of sleep. Um, I've noticed in life, when, when your heart begins to, to bend towards greed and away from generosity, on the path of the fool, all of a sudden you'll begin to notice uh, that you get robbed of sleep. You're obsessing over uh, possessions, fragile things that, you, uh, that, that are all destined for, for the town dump ultimately, but you're trying to, uh, your heart, you, you realize one day you, you don't own these things. They begin to own you. And there's a restlessness with this kind of life. When you get caught up in, in a cycle of gossip, a vicious cycle that you started or somebody else started, all of a sudden you begin to worry, well, do they know what I know? And, are they, and there's this restlessness that comes with this kind of life. Uh, Solomon invites us to see this kind of life, it's hazardous to our health. It, it begins to damage our soul in ways that uh, it just makes us, uh, we, we end up being robbed of sleep, according to Solomon. This kind of life, the path of the fool is destructive. And then he says this in the next part, verse 17 talking about the way of the fool. They eat the bread of wickedness and they drink the wine of violence. Such a powerful imagery. Uh, the Hebrew mind, uh, 3,000 years ago, where Solomon, who Solomon's uh, writing these words to, uh, they think in terms of pictures and images. In our culture, we think in terms of lists often or bullet points or uh, just give me the facts, give me the, the cold hard data. Uh, that's not how uh, they learned or, or learned. That's not how they thought. They thought in terms of pictures. That's why you see Jesus over and over again uh, talking in parables and stories and images uh, because this is how uh, they talk about different ways of life. Verse 18, the path of the righteous is like the morning sun shining ever brighter to the full light of day. 
But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Uh, Einstein said it this way, that uh, foolishness is doing the same thing, or insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And that uh, this is the way of the fool. You, you keep going. Eventually, this will make me happy. If I keep pursuing this, if I keep doing this, uh, eventually, over time, it's going to lead to satisfaction. And it never does. What it does is it makes you want more, and it makes you want more, and it makes you want more. But on the path of the fool, you begin to lack such self-awareness where you begin to be deceived by your own desires. And uh, essentially what Solomon's saying is like the path of the fool is, like a, is, is being in a hole of darkness where you can't even see clearly. And that when you begin to choose the way of God, it's like opening the curtains and the light floods in. You have self-awareness again. You begin to realize that the things that we often pursue uh, are not going to give us what they promised to give us. There's a better way. He keeps inviting us again and again. There's a better way, the way of the wise. Verse 19, but the way of the wicked is like a deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Verse 20, my son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ear to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. Uh, Again, in the Hebrew mind, uh, the heart is considered the seat of the soul. We're gonna talk about that in just a moment. Uh, But the eyes and the ears are considered the gateway to the heart. Uh, Be careful, protect them. Because the heart, as we'll see in a moment, is this sacred, precious thing. Verse 22, for they are life to one who finds them, or health to one's whole body, that there's a wholeness uh, to the words of God. That when you begin to be obedient to scriptures, it's not just uh, one day when you die, you'll get to go to heaven. It's in this life, in the here and now, you begin to discover uh, this beautiful kind of life where you live in rhythm with God. Verse 23, Now, he could say whatever he wants here. He could say to choose the path of the wise, go to church more, uh, which is a good thing, sing more worship songs, which is a good thing, have a longer quiet, all good things. Uh, But he doesn't do that. He says, above all else, to go the way of the wise, do this. Above all else, guard your heart. Above all else, guard your heart. Let's just say that phrase together, guard your heart. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. For everything about your life, it flows from your heart. A lot of translations say uh, the heart is the wellspring of life. Uh, What Solomon's doing here is he's uh, making this connection for us between our heart and our feet. That whatever our heart gets wrapped around, Whatever we allow our heart to begin to worship or pursue or desire or fall in love with, all of a sudden our heart will begin to get dragged down either the path of the wise or the path of the fool. But our heart is this sacred thing. And in a a culture that's constantly bent on the exterior and uh, trying to change our behavior and do better in here and better at this area of life, uh, Solomon calls on us to examine the interior, to guard the interior to look at our hearts, guard your heart. It is your most precious possession. Jesus calls us to this over and over again in the New Testament, that the heart, that that what happens on the inside of us, it ultimately will come outside, that uh, our heart is our most sacred thing. And so Solomon says, guard your heart. It is the wellspring of life. It is the thing that everything about you flows out of. It has everything to do with what path you choose, whether you're wise or whether... Uh, in life, as he uses the word, you will become uh, destined to be uh, a fool. What does your heart fall in love with? Examine the heart. 
in our culture, we often, in church and in culture anywhere, people get obsessed with this idea, well, how do I change? How do I become a different kind of person? It's the reason many people come back to church because there's some area of life that uh, has gone off the rails and we're going, I need to change this about myself. I need to change this area of life. And oftentimes, even in church, we begin to, uh, to put duct tape on things or we begin to try to make areas where we start things or stop things. I need to do better here. I need to try harder. Uh, we, we rely on guilt or coercion often uh, to try to, to change things about ourselves. And oftentimes, uh, it, it has a very short-term benefit, doesn't it? And oftentimes the entire religious experience or the Christian experience for many people becomes a lot like cutting weeds. That you get rid of something and it just keeps coming back. You, you get rid of something, it just keeps coming back over and over. And that thing, that addiction, whatever it is, it just keeps bubbling up over the surface and you can't seem to get rid of it. And Solomon is saying here, eventually you have to put the weed eater down and grab the shovel. Eventually you have to go beneath the soil. And you have to begin to examine what has the heart, what has your heart, what has my heart got wrapped around? What idea, what person, what thing, what has it fallen in love with? Because this has everything to do with what path you choose and what path you go down in life. In our world, uh, we often have a very dualistic view of human nature or human beings. Uh, it comes from the Greeks, this idea that a human being is made up really of two parts the head and the heart. And we'll often talk about how to change. We'll use uh, language of the head and language of the heart that uh, essentially the, the head is the rational, reasonable part of us. And we talk about the heart as if it's this fickle, uh, we say things like the heart wants what it wants. Uh, you can't predict it, it's emotional. It, if you let it, the heart will just drive you off the rails. And it's true to a certain extent uh, that, that you have to begin to make the heart obedient to the head. This is how we think about life change, that uh, I gotta get my head to, to speak to my heart, to begin to guide me down the right path because if the heart is in control, man, we're in trouble. And the Bible, uh, the problem with that analogy is that in that analogy or in that metaphor, uh, the heart is just the wellspring of emotion or it's just the wellspring of feelings. And the Bible takes a much different view of a human being that the heart isn't just the wellspring of emotion or feelings, but the heart is the wellspring of what? Of life, of life. Uh, that ultimately, whatever the thing, you can trim the weeds all you want, but ultimately you have to dig down and you can't will your way through it. You can't just, I'm gonna talk myself into it. You have to begin to examine the thing that the heart has fallen in love with because ultimately it will flow out of us. It will become ultimately who we are. Uh, notice the very next verse in the passage, verse 24. Uh, ultimately, if you don't guard your heart, everything you do flows from it. But verse 24, he says, keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk from your lips that by guarding the heart, uh, somehow what happens on the inside will begin to uh, have uh, control over what happens on the outside. We have to guard the heart because the heart, uh, it, it's made to merge with something. The human heart, this is true for every single one of us in this room, the human heart is made to find something and merge with it and fall in love with something. You can think of it this way, uh, that every human being ultimately has uh, a throne or, or, or a king's seat in the heart. And you will decide, this is true whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, to put something on the throne of your heart. 
the heart needs something. It's true for everybody to, to merge with, to uh, attach itself to, to worship ultimately, uh, that we fall in love with. It's the thing that at some point in life, you decide and I decide is the most beautiful and valuable thing that you've ever seen. And we begin to orient our entire life around it. Our life curves towards whatever that thing is that sits on the throne of our heart. In the American culture, in our world that we live in, it's, tr it's true for, for me, it's true for many of us, all of a sudden we will find ourselves uh, putting money on the throne of our heart and we'll end up bending our entire life around it. And, and we will find things that are good things, like money, and we will not just make them good things, but we'll make them ultimate things. And the Bible, by the way, never says money is bad, uh, never says money's a bad thing, it says money's a bad God, <laughs> There's a huge difference between the two. And if money becomes the thing that your heart merges with, it's not a bad thing, but if it becomes an ultimate thing, all of a sudden you will find yourself in life uh, choosing jobs or careers that aren't about fulfillment or doing what you're wired or built to do, but are just about a bigger and better paycheck. All of a sudden, your relationships will begin to, to bend uh, in, in, in a sort of way that your life is oriented around this and your relationships will be everything in your life. And, and because money is sitting on the throne of your heart, uh, it will continually undermine your ability to be happy or experience the thing that you ultimately want the most. Joy, satisfaction, you'll continually live with a sense of uh, the more I get of it, the more I want. Because what Solomon is calling us to see is that if anything besides God ends up on the throne of our heart, we end up destined for the path of the fool. And we never experience what we ultimately want in life, joy, satisfaction, the sense of peace. And oftentimes as Christians, it ends up being good things that we put on the throne of our heart. It might be the idea of marriage. If I just meet Mr. Right, if I just meet Mrs. Right, if I can just find the right person, then I will be complete. I will be a person that is happy and filled with joy. And what begins to happen is that you can't ever seem to find anybody because one of two things will happen. You will either be so picky that you can't find anybody because you're not looking for a spouse, you're looking for a God. Or you'll end up marrying the first person that comes along and they'll never meet your needs because you're expecting them to be something they were not designed to be. And it will end up undercutting. If anything other than God sits on the throne of your heart, even a good thing, it will end up undercutting your desire to have what you want the most, a good marriage. It could be relationship with kids, having a good relationship with kids, a good thing. But if it becomes an ultimate thing, that having a great relationship with your kids, if that becomes an ultimate thing, then one of two things will begin to happen. You'll never punish them for fear that they're going to reject you. Or you'll end up creating an image that they're supposed to meet and what they're supposed to be, and you'll spend the relationship trying to force them into that image. And either way, you'll end up undercutting your desire to have the thing that you want the most a good relationship with your kids. Because what Solomon says, guard your heart. Because if it merges with anything or any idea other than God, we become destined for the path of the fool. Guard your heart. Good things often take the place of God in our heart. And we have to protect what our heart merges with, what it decides to worship or bow down to. Christianity is different than all the religions of the world in the sense that it doesn't say desire is bad or wanting uh, or longing is bad. But what Christianity calls us to examine again and again is the object of our desires. What we long for, 
that God's not repressive. It's just that God says, uh, you settle for something uh, far less than what I have intended and designed for you. And, the, and, and becoming a Christian is essentially saying, God, I see you as the most beautiful option of all the options of God's in the world, of things I could worship and put on the throne of my heart. I mean, becoming a Christian is essentially uh, saying, God, I want you to be the one that sits here ultimately. I, I want to begin to have you on the throne of my heart. And I'll struggle with this over and over again. The two paths will always pull me. And I'll always wanna put my heart and attach it to something I shouldn't. But God, I wanna continually remind myself to put you as the ultimate thing in my life, not just a good thing. One of the things uh, I notice as a dad is that oftentimes, uh, if this whole thing's clear as mud for you, let me try to explain it this way. As a dad, I have a little boy. His name's Dane. He's three years old. You've heard me talk about Dane uh, many times if you come here regularly. And uh, Dane, one of our favorite things to do is to sit in our backyard at the house. And uh, I have a grill in the backyard. And uh, we sit in the backyard and uh, I like to smoke things back there. Uh, meat, just to clarify. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> what kind of church is this, man? Uh, <laughs> And uh, Dane, we will sit in the backyard and uh, he likes the grill. I think he likes it because it uh, emits this white smoke and he thinks it looks like a train and he just loves it. But we'll sit in the backyard for hours and uh, there's a wiffle ball. We just, we have a good time. We'll just sit back there, you know, smoking meats and all kinds of things. And uh, a few months ago, we were having a celebration. It was a birthday or something. And uh, I said, Dane, uh, why don't we go to the store and I'm gonna let you pick out what we eat tonight. And he was so excited. So we go to the grocery store and uh, I let him pick out what we're gonna have and Dane has good taste. And he decides that we are going to have Alaskan king salmon. Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? How big and wonderful. Uh, everything's bigger in where? Wrong, Costco. Well, it's not a trick question, really. Uh, <laughs> thought I caught this in like... Lake Ray, Costco. Uh, but uh, he decided this is what we were gonna have. And so we go in the backyard and we do the whole cedar plank. I mean, we just, the whole nine yards, we go crazy. And uh, the moment comes to eat. We sit at the table and everybody's, you know, my wife's made this entire spread of food, just one of these family, beautiful moments. And as we prepare to eat and cut the fish, Dane looks at me and he goes, I don't want that. Like, what are you talking about? You don't want, you picked it. He goes, no, I, I want a different fish. We're not going to the store. We're not going back. You, some of you as parents, you've been in this position. You're going, I, I, how do I reason with you right now? And I'm like, well, what do you want to eat? And he goes, I want a different fish. Go get me a different fish. I'm like, Dad, buddy, this is the only fish we have. We'll eat at 11 o'clock if we keep playing this game. And so he goes in the pantry and he picks out a different fish. And he grabs his favorite <laughs> Goldfish. Now, I, I'm not knocking goldfish. I like goldfish as much as the next guy. They're delicious. But compared uh, to Alaskan king salmon, how, who would choose this? And it's this moment, I'm like, you're not my child right now. Like, <laughs> what is going on? And he's just, so, so for dinner, uh, this is what he eats. He chooses the lesser thing and ignores the better thing. And in any area of our life where uh, we find ourselves in rebellion to God, any area of life where we find ourselves rejecting something uh, that God's offered us, 
It really comes down to us clutching goldfish and ignoring whatever it is that God has prepared or desires for us. In our culture, God has said, I want you to experience marriage ultimately. That would be what God wants for you. He says, I want you that, not that if you're single, you're an incomplete person, but he says, if you long to get married, I want you to experience that. And a sacrificial relationship with somebody. And oftentimes we choose pornography, just pictures. Clutch the goldfish and say, well, I'll settle for this. And God's going, why would you settle for that when, when you could have this? God says, I've made you for friendship and community where you can begin to experience the joy of being open and honest and uh, confessing with one another. And oftentimes we settle for isolation. And in any area of our life where we're rejecting God or, or sinning, it really comes down to clutching goldfish and saying, I'll settle for this. Where are the areas of life where you find yourself on the path of the fool? It's because somewhere along the way, your heart decided to settle for goldfish. And we end up ignoring the, the beautiful thing that God wants us to experience. I love the way Paul says it in Ephesians chapter four, verse 28. He says this, he says, about this life with God that we're invited to live, Ephesians 4, verse 28, says, anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful, useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. I love this verse because uh, he says, yeah, don't steal anymore because yeah, stealing's wrong, but that's not the end of the message. It's not just deny yourself from stealing. If at any point denial becomes the point, we've missed the point. <laughs> if at any point in our faith journey, denial becomes the point, we just completely miss the point. And for many of us, isn't it true, your entire religious Christian experience, your entire perception of God has just been put down the goldfish. Don't do that anymore. And what does he say in the next part of it? He says, he who's been stealing must steal no longer, but instead do something useful with his own hands that it may benefit the poor, that it may help people in need, that that's a bigger, more wonderful reality of what to do with your life. It's not just stop something. It's not just put down the goldfish. It's begin to experience what God's intended for you, that essentially stealing or sin is adrenaline God wrong. It's, it's misaimed passion and desire where we don't realize the beautiful thing that God's inviting us to experience and our heart will merge with the wrong thing and ignore the better thing that God wants us to experience and have. Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 13 and talking about the kingdom, the, the way that God's invited us to live. He says the kingdom of heaven, uh, the way of God, the, the way and the life of God is like a preacher that makes everybody feel guilty. Uh, when a man, just kidding. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. That when we taste and see that the Lord is good, any other kind of life pales in comparison to the invitation of God to come and sit at the king's table, enjoy the feast, enjoy the things that God's inviting us to have. C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, Weight of Glory, describes it this way, and it's a beautiful 
quote, one of my favorite quotes. He says, when we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. That over and over again, you, me, we clutch goldfish and our heart merges with, the, with something that is far less than what God's intended. Where is the thing? Where is the place in your life where you, you're clutching goldfish? Where God's invited you into a better life. Maybe it's in terms of concealment. You find yourself uh, living a life of secrecy. And we invite you to stop by the, the Connection Center and just begin to confess and begin to be open and free and live a different kind of life, a better kind of life. Maybe you find yourself, maybe you're not a Christian, and we invite you today, and, and, and it's not that you uh, are a bad person, but you, you keep clutching all the wrong things in life. And it, it's time just to say, God, I want you to sit here. I want you to be on the throne of my heart. We invite you to stop by the Connection Center, pray with somebody. Maybe you find yourself rejecting God in terms of community. You find yourself saying, God, I'd rather live in isolation I invite you to join a life group. Begin to experience the beautiful joy of being in community. Relationships. You've been wired. You've been built as a communal person. Uh, what is the area of life uh, where you need to begin to put down the goldfish uh, to begin to experience the things that God wants you to experience? Uh, let's pray together. God, I thank you for the invitation of the gospel to taste and see that the Lord is good. God, I pray all across this building, uh, areas where we hold on to things, we clutch the goldfish. I pray we would release it so you can put something new in our hands, a better life. I thank you, God, that you invite us to a life that's not always the easiest life, but it's a better life. And we say yes to it. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen.